Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the evening, Joe. Trying to think if there was anything uh, particularly interesting that happened that I could like talk to you about. I tend to like to try to share some details uh, with you uh, from a regular life every now and then, you know, just to let you guys know and remind you that I am, in fact, a human being. Um, somehow I feel like we haven't done this thing in like three weeks and I don't feel like there's been that much real life that I feel like actually sharing with you. guys. Oh, let me tell you this. This is actually pretty funny. I had kind of forgotten about this. So week or two ago, I can't remember exactly when it was. It feels like it might've been, it was, it feels like it was last week. It's entirely possible that it was the week before. Um, so I look at my uh, the, the the inbox, the DMs on the Twitter. I look over there, and it's from the Ray Shermer account. And they hit me, and they're like, "Yo, super secret birthday party for the homie Sway Lee." Oh, it's in Miami, snow location. They say they're gonna let you know. On Tuesday, right? The party's supposed to be on Tuesday. So it's like Monday this comes up. So they say on Tuesday, they're going to let you know where the party's at. Now, I just want to remind you guys, I'm 36 years old. I turned 37 in a couple of months. I'm not saying that like I'm like ancient or ridiculously old, right? Like I'm not ridiculously old. However, I am also not. 24, which is what the, the young man Sway Lee is. He is 24, and they kick it different. Like I told you, man, it's Art Basel. I guess this was 2014 Art Basel. Roll up in the spot. Some party, like Mike Will made it. doing a party. I'm like, okay, cool. So we roll up into the Mike Will made party. And then next thing I know, the little shrimmer dudes roll up. Now, I need you to understand, it was a venue that I should have been at, right? Like, I wasn't out here, like, hitting outside of my age class. That wasn't what it is. They rolled up, and they just decided they wanted to get bucked. And, man, these cats, like, started jumping up on the bar, man. They had to shut the whole thing down. And they were like, yeah, but 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 it was lit, right? I mean, it it was over. It was over. Like, like regardless of how lit it was, I'm sure it was lit for you. But for the rest of us, it was time to go find something else to do. Like, you party, go with you. Me, I got to go find a party. So anyway, um, I don't really have, like, the stamina at this point in my life to uh, just be out here kicking it, like, with the, the shrimmer dudes. But it's like, yo, if it's, like, the super secret location. I might have to find a way to make this happen, right? Like, I don't, I think it's supposed to be a pool party. I think they say it's going to start at like six or something like that. I get off work at seven. I'm like, yeah, at the very least, I can fall through a little bit. Like, in my head, my plan was, like, how do I get Poppy here so that we can have pictures of Poppy, like, in the Barbera at the uh, Swaley birthday pool party, right? Like, I got all these things going through my mind because, like, I would like to be there, though I'm not sure I want to go, if that makes sense. Man, listen, they ain't never sent me the damn location of that party. 
I got no idea that party happened. I, I know nothing. And I really wasn't in no position to be reaching out to nobody and be like, yo, I thought y'all said I could come to the party. And like, I don't know if anybody else wound up in a similar predicament and they felt the same way, right? All right, like, like maybe somebody else is in that exact same place. But, I mean, I guess I probably could have called somebody from the label or something like that. But at the end of the day, man, next thing, they have to do it like that, right? And then I felt, like, terrible about me, right? Like, I, I felt horrible about, like, where I was in this at a point where I was just a little bit, like, peeved that they did not let me know the location of the party. And then what I look like, I just gave you this whole fucking speech about me being 36, going on 37 and everything else. And now I'm a little salty because I ain't get the birthday party invite, but I'm only salty about not getting the birthday party invite because I got the birthday party invite. Y'all just ain't tell me where it was. Which like ultimately it's worse. Like this is, uh, I'm, I feel to a degree akin to the dream that Brumman had about the glass refrigerator full of sandwiches that he could not open. Excuse me. Sandwiches that he could not open. Yeah, I think I already told you about this too. Is that you know we had them all highly questionable, and I said something like, "Put the kids in touch with me." I did the interview, man, because I thought they were cool. Like I just want to see what happens with them. And dude from the label sent some email. It was like, "Oh, Bomani wants to be down with the shrimp life." I'm like, "I wouldn't be no down with no fucking shrimp life." Like I ain't got no beef with the shrimp life, but how down with the shrimp life do you expect me to be? Like, how old do you think I am? I mean, there's just a limitation to how down I can get at this point. And I'm cool, I'm cool with that, by the way. All right, I'm comfortable with that. I don't, I don't really feel like I have to apologize for that. But I also don't feel like I have to explain it. So, yeah, anyway, um, that happened. I believe it's about time to move on to your questions. Hmm. Did Bill Maher really need a bunch of black people to explain to him why he shouldn't be out here saying the N-word? I understand that we're a little bit late on Bill Maher telling a really bad N-word joke. Or, or, or no, I think we talked about Bill Maher telling a really bad N-word joke. Did we have, have we talked about that? You guys who do this regularly... Uh, you let me know. Because, I mean, I guess it's been done. But I certainly had my thoughts about Bill Maher on that one. And my big thing with Bill Maher on that one was, hey, man, you got to be a fire comedian. Fire, I tell you, fire. To be the white man telling a joke involving the N-word when you're not actually trying to talk badly about black people. And when I say you got to be a fire comedian to do it, I mean, you got to be a fire comedian in the sense that you have to be like ridiculously funny. Like aside from the fact that you have to have some real like talents to weave it in, right. Or everything else. You, you have got to be really, 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 really funny. And Bill Maher is not. Now, that's not to say that Bill Maher is entirely unfunny, because I do not believe that. But Bill Maher is not, like, super-duper, super-duper, super-duper funny. What Bill Maher is is, like, now I would not say smarter than the average comedian, but he's more educated than you would say the average comedian. I think he went to Cornell or whatever it is, so he could package this stuff together pretty well. And he's pretty insightful 
um, when it comes to politics stuff. So you put that together well, and it becomes like a great candidate to be a host for a show like Real Time or Politically Incorrect. You know, like like he's a fit in that place. But we're not talking about George Carlin here, right? We're not talking about Eddie Murphy here. We are talking about Bill Maher, who's pretty funny. You need to be more than pretty funny to make that joke work that he was trying to pull off, right? Like, like you really, really need to be more than pretty funny. And you need to cop to the fact that the humor of you telling this joke is largely rooted in your willingness to say this word, Right? So, like, if he says, oh, no, I'd never work in the fields, which is basically saying the same thing with far less risk, right? But he didn't think that would be funny. He thought saying a little word would be funny. And, I mean, it certainly made some people laugh. And then I imagine Bill Maher had one of the more unpleasant weeks in his life. And that was a week where he got lectured uh, by a whole lot of black people. A lot of black people he got lectured by. Now, I want to be very clear because you guys like really care about this like particular sort of detail. But I, I, I am going to be very clear in saying that in this moment, I am not calling Bill Maher a racist. I will say that I may reserve the right to call him one later, uh, depending upon what you put in front of me. But as of this moment, no, no, no. Bo Monty Jones is not calling Bill Maher a racist um i will tell you though that bill maher's father his middle name was aloysius anyway um not saying bill maher is a racist i'm saying though bill maher is a white man right he is a white man in this society and one thing about being a white man in america is you really ain't got to listen to no black people you don't feel like listening to you really don't have to listen to any women that you don't feel like listening to Right. And you know that this is kind of the credo of white men in America. Because look at what happened when white men don't feel like listening to you no more. You know what they do? They just stop. It just ends. Right. I don't have to listen to you. And then kind of, you know, like, you know, we send this to the arbitration board and two to one vote. I guess you don't. Right. And so Mar appears to operate on this N-word thing with an understanding that it's probably something that he should not do. And it's probably not worth it. But he is yet to hear a compelling reason why he should not be able to say it. Now, I would, on one level, be inclined to agree and say that he should be allowed to say it, right? And because I never say that anybody's not allowed to say something. I just don't want you to be surprised when you get your ass whooped. Like, you can pretty much do whatever it is that you want. Like, it's your world. Just understand, man, on the other side is something that you probably don't want. So your desire to do this overwhelming the recognition of the consequences that come on the other side tell me that there's something funny that make you want to do this in the first place. Because you know, like, there's going to be some bloodletting on this. You are aware of this fact. Like, that one's not just going to slide. You're not going to laugh that one off. And so Bill Marv spent a whole week kind of getting hammered for that. He put out his apology. And then it appeared to be like a parade of negritude. Some people nicer than others, but a parade of negritude to make it clear to Bill Maher that his N-word thing wasn't cracking, including what we all would have to admit is something wildly ironic about Ice Cube coming onto that show to lecture Bill Maher on using that N-word while he is promoting the 25th anniversary release of Death Certificate. 
right. I cannot imagine, imagine how furious, furious, I tell you, furious Bill Maher had to be being lectured on his language by a dude on his show promoting an album that had no Vaseline on it. Like, oh, you are going to tell me what I can't do. And there really wasn't anything that Bill Maher could do. Sit there and take it. Because for him to operate in the circles that he wants to operate in, that's what he had to do. At the very least, Keep up the appearance that you believe that maybe after all the stuff black folks done had to deal with, maybe this is one that you could take off the table. All for the appearance, right? Because one thing about it, from what I could tell, that crowd had some nice loud applause for anybody that wanted to say today anything that Bill Maher was a racist. Like, he wanted to make sure that that was right there. Because his thing, man, what you do if your liberal hero winds up being a racist, right? Like, now you got a big problem because you're not prepared to, like, throw in the towel on your liberal hero over this. But your liberal hero might be a racist, might be kicking it in a way that indicates some level of racism. He just might, all right? And the arrogance with which Marr has dealt with this, it makes you ask some questions. And we can go back through the videotape, right? Like, I mean, Mar ain't perfect. I think that's maybe the kindest way to put it, right? Mar is not perfect. And he exposed himself and others. Somebody had to put their capes on. They had to. That's all it was. They had to put on the capes. Anyway, did Bill Martin need a parade of black people to tell him that? Yes. And he needed a parade of black people to tell him that because they needed to keep that show on the air. Like, that's what they needed. Now, I am of the belief that if you needed a parade of people to explain this to him, then he's hopeless. Let me look this up as I'm just sitting here you know, going through the wiki while I do a podcast. Um Bill Barr's 61 years old, man. Ain't that much about to change. It's not. Appreciate the question. Let's see what else we got here. My man in the room says Louis C.K. is one of those that uses the N-word quite often. Let me tell you something, though. Like, I ain't trying to say that he's got a ghetto pass or anything, as the as, as is known in the parlance. But Louis C.K. kind of traffics in some circles where I feel like he's testing this stuff out and making sure that he ain't going to get his ass whooped. All right. And from what I can tell about the Louis C.K. routine with the N-word, it's like an intellectual exercise. Like, I'm not an absolutist about this. Like, I'm not one of these people that feels like if a white person is talking about, what is it, Little Nigga Jim and the Mark Twain stuff? Like, oh, my God, white person said Little Nigga Jim. What am I going to do? Like, I'm not that. I'm not there at all in that way. Like, if you do it, bless your heart. Go ahead and do it. 
I'm just telling you, chances are you've got to be really, really, really good to do it. And that's what you got to understand. Let me see what we got here. Heard the Tupac movie was rushed and bad. Should these biopics make it a miniseries rather than putting so much into a two-hour movie? I mean, you're talking about a biopic about somebody who died at 25. Like, how much how much movie are you looking for? So, I mean, I guess you could do that, but no, nah, that's not really, like, if it's a bad movie, it's a bad movie. Like, that's it. I haven't seen it. Um, I thought they got the kid, and they seem to look a lot like Tupac, which, I mean, does matter for something when you're making one of those movies. But, like, I hate to want to run into the theater to go see the Tupac movie. I'm curious about it, I have to admit, but I'm not the one running to the theater to see that. I don't understand how anybody would dare rush a Tupac movie, though. And the reason I say that is... Like that that that's easy money if you do it right. Like people are drawn to content about Tupac. Like it was amazing the way that audiences just received the idea of Tupac when he was alive. And so I think there's a lot of intrigue about what Tupac was because I don't know if it's possible to explain to the current generation like what the significance of him was. You know, like uh, there really aren't rappers and stars right now that had quite the connection that Tupac had. And to be clear, there are very few people that have ever been able to connect with their audiences in the ways that Tupac had. But I don't I don't know how easy it is to explain to like a 19 year old like what this Tupac thing meant. And so I think that when you have people talk about him so much and folks want to go see the movie, that you'd have a lot of people who were drawn to it. Man, when the first one is awful, it makes it real hard to get somebody to come out here and get a second one made. What are they going to say? Somebody already tried the Tupac movie. You know what I mean? Like, like that's the one. That's the one. How do you blow the Tupac movie? And, I mean, enough people I've seen that, you know, had seen it and talked about it, they seem to say that the kid who played Tupac did a good job. It was just a horrible movie, and there was nothing really to work around. Yeah, I know. But, oh, well. I ain't tripping. I'd actually much rather see a Tupac documentary. Like, the people I care enough about to watch a biopic, chances are I'd rather see the documentary. Appreciate the question. Let me see what else we got here. Is the next Jay-Z album for the culture? Is he just keeping up with Beyonce? So, yeah, Jay-Z said he got an album coming out. Um, Very interesting, by the way. So I said on Twitter... And I mean this. I was just letting people know. If you don't really care about Jay-Z putting out an album in 2017, that's okay. Like, I'm just letting you know. You don't have to pretend to care about Jay-Z doing an album in 2017. Now, will I listen to the Jay-Z album that comes out? Sure. At some point. You see what I mean? Like, I will listen to it. I'm just not, like, pressed to listen to it. And if you are pressed to listen to it, I got no beef with you. Like, all of us got people 
where we are pressed when they put something out. It doesn't matter how long they've been in the game. Like Big Boy put out a new tape. I think the Big Boy tape is dope that Big Boy just put out, right? I don't blame you if you don't still check for Big Boy's music. I can understand how you don't. He still does it for me. I don't expect you to check for him in this way. With Jay-Z, man, when a Jay-Z record comes out, like, this is the time where we're going to be cool and talk about how much we love Jay-Z albums, even though Jay-Z albums have been 20 years of hit or miss propositions. No really, really bad ones, by the way. Right? But a bit up and down. I think we'd all agree. But anyway, so Jay putting out an album. Let's see what it is. The last one, the 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 Magna Carta joint. The thing about the Magna Carta joint was like it sounded good. Like the beats did not necessarily, but it sounded good. Like there were good beats on there. And Jay, I mean, when is Jay gonna stop being dope on the mic? Never, right? Like he's he's a, an incredible rapper who will rap incredibly until the day he dies. Right? I mean, that's him. That's what it's going to be. He's going to rap incredibly until the day he dies. I just found myself wholly uninterested in what he was talking about. I just, I mean, the Picasso baby. and all, No, man. Jay-Z is really into art right now. Good for you, homie. And, hey, rap your truth. Live your truth. I don't care. And I'm not saying your truth should be there to entertain me. I'm just saying you are not entitled to my attention just because you Jay-Z. So, I guess you guys will let me know how this Jay-Z album is. Hey, man, like one thing I'm enjoying is the fact that we got rappers who are in their mid-40s who are still making records and still making really good records. Like, I think that's dope. I think that's encouraging. It gives me stuff to listen to, right? Like, I'm here for it because, look, one thing that is totally different about now versus the past. I, I think I've talked about this on here before, but one thing about it is like the art of rapping just doesn't mean the same thing to this generation. And it's not even also all these young boys don't, don't, don't appreciate nothing. It's not even a matter of that is that rap is something that they inherited. Like, I don't feel like this generation of kids has like a real investment in rap in that way. Because it's not theirs. It's something that was like handed down to them. In a lot of ways, it's not terribly different than like what a doo-wop group would be for me. So let's think about this, right? I'm born in 1980, okay? So if we go to 1990, I'm 10 years old, right? And so let's say Motown, right? All right, so we talk about Motown stuff is really like, you know, 25 years ago, like the height of it. You know, we, we talk about like 25 years ago. Yo, 25 years ago from right now is the chronic. You see what I mean? So, like, this is something that they inherited. And so what they do is, like, rap is something that they throw in with all the other stuff that they're working with. And it comes out as whatever the music of the day is. But, like, the idea of the art of being an MC, it doesn't exist in that way anymore because that's not, that's not their sensibility, right? That's just not it. And so, for me, like, if you're somebody who loves hearing people who can rap, 
You know what I mean? Like you love hearing people who can really rap. I want Jay-Z to keep putting out five tapes. I do because I want five tapes to listen to that subscribe to that paradigm in such a way because I like hearing people who can really, really rap and who really, really care about being able to really, really rap. So I'm not saying that there's nobody in this day and age who cares about being able to rap, but overall, it just doesn't have the significance that it did then. It just doesn't. But I ain't really tripping on OJ album. So if you keep it up with Beyonce for the culture, what else he going to do, man? He's a rapper. He raps. What else he about to do? And who knows? He might have some fascinating thoughts on fatherhood that he wants to share with the world. He might have some social commentary stuff that he wants to give. I'll check it out at some point. At some point. Appreciate the question. Let me see what we got here. What work will Prodigy be known for? Rest in peace, Prodigy Mob Deep. Uh, he died on Wednesday. So I ran Hell on Earth today in the car to and from work. I had listened to Hell on Earth. I feel like I hadn't listened to Hell on Earth in years, and I feel like the last time I said I had I listened to Hell on Earth, I said I hadn't listened to Hell on Earth in years. Hell on Earth is... So it's interesting, right? Like Hell on Earth in a lot of ways, I think, is like their Paul's Boutique. Um, I think Pearl Jam's Versus might fall in this same category. And what I'm going for here is the album after the album that really gets an act known, but the one after might be better, even though our default is to say the one before it was better and i don't know if the i don't know if i'm saying hell on earth is necessarily better than the infamous because the infamous had a certain energy that hell on earth doesn't have like hell on earth is certainly technically better um but anyway i'm listening to it and i'm just thinking about this with mob deep here's why this whole catch-all rock and roll hall of fame thing doesn't work right it doesn't work because there is no room in that structure for a group like Mob Deep, right? And so Mob Deep put out, you know, that first album they put out when they were kids. But then once they became Mob Deep, those first Mob three, first three Mob Deep albums are a strong and out-the-box three-record stretch as damn near anybody is putting out there. Like, they are an amazing, fascinating construction. Art school gangsters, right? They are kids who went to art school and then brought all that training back so that they could make really grimy music, right? Really grimy, technically perfect, evocative, haunting music. And it's great, right? And so with Prodigy, Prodigy, ain't no, he's not a bells and whistles MC. Like, that's not how it works. It was a smooth flow. It was very direct. It was clear, and it was evocative, and it was very, very, very sincere. Like, people, I think, look at Mob Deep on some old, they talk this noise, but they wasn't really living it. Like, I ain't really want to speak on whether they were living it or not, but I tell you this, even if they was just talking it, they was really fucking good at talking. And that's mostly Prodigy, right? I mean, he's a beast, beast, beast in that way. The Dunn language, all that, right? They were so cold. And so when you talk about what will Prodigy be known for, I'm afraid in 20 years people aren't going to know Prodigy. Because I don't feel like there's a space 
to capture and preserve and maintain the memory and legacy of people who made music like Mob Deep. Right? Like the 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 magazines, if or whatever that's gonna mean, they're not gonna go back and do something on the infamous in that way. Nobody's gonna put them like in no rock and roll hall of fame. But if there were a rock band that had three albums out the gate that were as respected and esteemed in rock circles in the ways that the infamous Hell on Earth and murder music were in rap, they would be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And they would. There's no way around that. Like, you think about this for a second. Cool G Rap will never be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Cool G Rap is so incredible. And there are many people who are analogous to someone like Cool G Rap who are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, right? Like, take a cat like Buddy Holly, for example, died at, what, 21 years old or 22, whatever it was. Like, he could get in. Cool G Rap is every bit as good at rapping as Buddy Holly was at doing rock music. Every bit. Every bit. There's no place for him there. Scarface is not going to make the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Scarface, Scarface quite possibly top 10 all time. Not going to make the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Ice Cube will make it as a solo artist and go in as NWA. And Dr. Dre going to make it in the same way. White folks know who they are. You see what I mean? But now, go ahead. R- run through those three Mob Deep albums, man. Prodigy is so good. By the way, Havoc is so good, too, on the beat. Dude, the Mob Deep, the Mob Deep drums. So I find that you young kids often talk about how you don't really rock with older rap music because you find yourself bored with the drum sounds, right? Because you feel like, oh, is everybody using the same drums? Wasn't no everybody using the same drums back in the day. You go back and listen to Mob Deep albums, you tell me who else had that snare. Now, you can say, well, that snare is just a snare. Okay, cool. Who else had that snare? And you show me what you got on GarageBand that's hitting you in the chest like the Mob Deep drums. You tell me who's doing that. Because that's that thing about mid to late 90s, man. Oh, my God, the drums are so good. The drums are so warm. The drums are so evocative. Like, they feel good. Sounding good is not enough. Music got to feel good, right? It's got to make you feel something in that way. And that's the thing about all that Mob Deep music. I'd appreciate it if they had a little more fun every now and then because they really could be a bummer. But they make you feel something, man. Appreciate the question. Let's see what else we got here. Any thoughts on the Congressional Black Caucus declining to meet with the president? I mean, if that's what they want to do. I don't blame them. Like, you know, I think a lot of people got mad at me when I said I understood why those HBCU presidents went to meet with Trump, even if in the end, you know, they didn't really get them very far. Um, I'd understand the Congressional Black Caucus would have gone and met with Trump. I would have. I also totally understand why they wouldn't. I don't think there's anything really more to it than that. I don't know if Trump can do anything to them necessarily. Wouldn't be surprised if this something happens in the, you know, they get the business end of things in some of their districts perhaps, but, eh, you know. Appreciate the question. Let me see what else we got here. 
Do you think hip-hop discourse, what constitutes a good rapper and good music, is dominated by New Yorkers? I mean, I think it was dominated by New Yorkers at one point, but I mean, I feel like we're kind of beyond that at this point. South Del won by the t-shirt, also pro uh, Um But, I mean, I don't... I do think the people who write about rap, it is still pretty heavily centered in New York, which is interesting, because I think Atlanta might be the better place for you to be. But, I mean, it's still pretty heavily, like, New York-centric. There's always going to be a heavy influence from New Yorkers in talking about rap, and there's always going to be, like, their role in determining what is or is not a good rapper. The thing is, I do think the Internet has democratized this a bit. And so many people get to say so many things and so many folks are held accountable for the stuff that they say that, I mean, I don't really feel like the regional bias exists in that way anymore. Like, I think up until, you know, the late 90s, and yeah, the New Yorkers really had a lot to say about what it is, but I also think that people lose sight of the fact that the overwhelming majority of rap music that was coming out at those times was coming out of New York. Like, yeah, there was a lot of dudes in L.A. that were doing stuff, but, like, cats getting deals, man. The companies were based in New York, and the thing about New York was, I mean, you really didn't have to go scouring the country to go find rap talent. There was so much of it in New York. So, yeah, them cats are just kind of up there. And then, you know, you get some cats in different places, get a little regional thing going on, maybe to get themselves some kind of a distribution deal, you know, and then go from there. But, yeah, New York is always going to have, like, a disproportionate level of sway in these discussions. Um, What I do wonder if at what point this happens is how many people, like, really do retroactive analysis on guys that they might have been inclined to dismiss when they were at a point where they were so New York centric, right? So if you were somebody who couldn't at all rock with Southern music in 1994, can you go back and acknowledge that A-Ball and MJG are cold, for example, right? Like UGK, they all know they're supposed to rock with UGK, but you know, can you go back and check on some of these people that you said was making music that like ultimately proved to be influential. Like I could make an argument that nobody's got more, nobody's music right now is more influential on like what's going on in rap than the three, six mafia. So if you dog the three, six mafia in 95, can you go back and acknowledge that their music is good? I think you have to do that. Appreciate that. Let me see what else we got here. What do you feel about biracial rappers like J. Cole or Logic and their place in hip-hop? J. Cole gets a pass for saying the N-word because he's brown, but Logic has problems because he's light-skinned. Guys, um, I am from Houston. You have to understand, biracial is like a relatively new term. Um, In the context in which we are using it right now, you know what we said biracial people were? Black. Black. They were black. Now, I have some pretty strident opinions on things as they relate to some of these discussions. 
surrounding uh, people who refer to themselves as being biracial. I don't really discuss those in public. And the reason I don't really discuss those in public is I am not comfortable speaking to biracial people about how I think they should identify. Right? I don't know that life. I haven't lived that life. Now, I have some understandings of the mechanics of race in America, and there's some like hard truths I might be able to offer, but I, I'm not really in the position to tell these folks how they should be, what they should be, what I'm not there, right? I just kind of like get on the sideline um, on those discussions because people seem to be living with like a serious level of conflict. And I don't want anybody to live with a level of conflict. That being said, I have listened to a bit of the Logic Kids albums. And it is interesting hearing him try to find his place. But I feel like I've been around the block long enough to know this, that as long as you can verify you're black, people kind of let you ride on the N-word thing. Now, if he doesn't feel comfortable on the N-word thing, then that's on him. However, whoever asked this utterly preposterous question um, I don't even know why you asked me this question. What do I feel about biracial rappers and their place in hip hop? What the fuck does that mean? Like, really? What does that mean? And hey, guys, you know, I opened it up here for you guys to ask questions. And it's not cool of me to, like, pull your question and simply just say that your question is ridiculous. I try to avoid that. So I really, really, really tried to answer this question. I really did. I went through a lot of thoughts. I really tried to. And and then in the end, it just really dawned on me. This is one of the worst questions in the history of this show. I've been doing this show for about six years. This is pretty low. So their place in the game, apparently there's like a biracial section. Some Jim Crow version of purgatory. Can you rap? Okay. Appreciate the question. Is Poppy what you'll miss most about HQ? So, yeah, I imagine that some of you listening to this may not be aware, but um, we're taping this on Wednesday night, June the 21st. Thursday, June the 22nd will be my last day on um, Highly Questionable. I have been doing Highly Questionable for four years, one month, and it'll be 11 days. No, nine days. We did started on the 13th. 
Um, I wrote something that I guess by the time this is available for most people on podcasts, I wrote something for ESPN that they're going to put out on some blog. I just threw together kind of quick because I don't think I've been in a position to kind of grapple with like the whole idea of this being the last day I've done this show. Like you have to realize something. It's the first time I'd ever had a job for more than a year and a half. Like I've been doing this job for four years. That is way longer than any job that I have ever had. Um, I have worked as an adult, basically as a freelancer. Like I've never worked in a situation where I work with like the same people every day for like longer than a year. Like I've just, I've just not done that. Like it was just so much of that was completely different and it happened to be on a television show. Um, and like a television show, I didn't think I was going to be on and a television show that I liked a lot before I got onto it. And then there was these, this whirlwind of circumstances and then boom, like I wind up on this show and it's not like we had this plan for me on this show. Like one day there were two people weekend comes, then it's three. And we're just going to figure this thing out, right? Like, I mean, if you think about it, if you watch that show, like, nothing really fundamentally changed about the structure of it, right? It was just like, all right, cool. We're going to pull another chair up, and we're going to get this thing uh, right. And, like, we did. Like, and I, I think that's maybe, like, maybe the craziest thing about this, like, when I really stop and think about it. This show was on ESPN2 when I started doing it. And then at some point, I guess it was about a couple of years in, they just did a little experiment to see how it would go if they put it on the big network. And then we never left. All right. I mean, like, like that's, that's not a small thing. Like now you've got kind of a lot of these shows that have migrated over to ESPN, but at that time that really wasn't happening like that. Like I, I there was a certain like gratification that I personally felt from that because I had done programs that I thought had been successful. Like I think my radio show at Raleigh, for example, I had numbers to back up the fact that it was successful, but it didn't ultimately survive. Like this was the first time that I've been able to be part of something that was not only doing well, but got in effect a promotion of sorts for the fact that it had done well. You know, like that, I mean, that's a big deal, man. Like at least it felt like it, to me and you know that didn't happen because i specifically was on the show like adding another person was necessary i happened to be who the other person was but to be a part of something that works that way is like really dope you know um so for me like on a zillion different levels the last four years um have been just like complete and total change um, you know, a job, I mean, the job legitimately has changed my life. And I mean, some ways good, some ways bad, like, you know, change, change can be a bit unwieldy. Um, like I like to think I'm who I was, at least I want to say that I'm who I was now. I mean, I'm not exactly the same person. Everybody evolves to a degree, but I guess I've, I, there's a certain level of energy that I've always concentrated on the fact that like, I like who I was before all this started. Like I didn't really need this to fill any holes. Like, this is going to validate me and turn me into some like completely different person. But 
life's different than it was in 2013. You know, like, it's not the same. And, and oh, you know, the overwhelming majority of those ways is positive. And they're a byproduct of being on a television show and being on it with, like, really good people who had been overwhelmingly good to me um, in ways that they didn't necessarily have to be, right? And so then you just get to a point where you're doing work you like, you're doing work you like with people that you respect. Um, you know, at different points, it's rocky for various reasons that you got to figure that stuff out. But doing good work, with people you respect on a network that's pretty highly respected, dude, that's a win. Like, you know, when I took this job to do this show, like, and some of you were around when this happened, right? So I take this job to do this show. What would you say best case scenario was, like, going into it? Like, what would you think the best case scenario was? Like, would you think necessarily in four years, hey, um, they're going to develop a vehicle um, built around you and someone else that you like a great deal and respect very much. Uh, You're going to have a radio show um, on the same network. And you're going to start, like, putting your hands in a few other things. Like, Like, what you got that's better than that? How much better could it possibly have worked out? You know, this is the thing about stuff working out also means that you kind of got to move on. And, you know, like I'm talking to you now the night uh, before the final episode. And so, like, I don't even really know what to do with it, to be honest. You know, there's so much other stuff that just, you know, is going on at this time, things that generally go on in these times, things, you know, specific to my life and everything else, that, like, I know what tomorrow is, right? Like, today before I left work, I took a whole bunch of my suits and put them in the car to, you know, get them out of there or whatever. Like, I'm aware that this is happening. I just don't have a great, like, yeah man it's gonna be a lot it's gonna be a lot so you know tune into highly questionable see if we turn into a three-headed blubbering mess because dan's probably gonna cry he's more likely to do said things and more comfortable doing them in public but i cried at the end of every radio show that i had so like i'm not gonna pretend like i'm above it I would leave my last words on the morning Jones where just play the fucking music. <laughs> Cause I just kind of lost it, uh, in that point. Um, yeah. It's like, how do you feel when something you love is ending, but it's just what it's gotta be. You know, it's just what it's gotta be. It's been good. It has been fantastic. Talk to you guys later.